could he do that? Are you on? Don't answer. What? Charles Darwin. Welcome, everybody, into Nerd Sesh. I'm your host, Carson Brabber. Alongside me is Logan Camden. And we had yet another eventful week in the NBA. Lots of interesting stuff happened. And today we're going to be talking about what really matters and what doesn't. In other words, what is news and what's not news. Logan, my first question for you. Steph Curry will not return versus the Wizards, as was initially reported tonight. Is this news or not news? Carson, I don't think this is news. Uh, Just because if I was the Warriors, I wouldn't have brought him back anyway. Um, The only situation I think this is news is if the Warriors are covering up the severity of the injury, which we have discussed. But with that being said, I don't think this is news. I think that this is news. And the reason I think it's news is because of an accompanying fact with this headline, which is the fact that Curry's trainer said that doctors say it could take up for a year to up to a year for his hand to be totally back to normal because of the nerve damage. That to me is kind of alarming. And obviously the extent of the damage is unknown to us as outsiders, but just looking at it from what we do know, it doesn't really ever take four months to some for someone to come back from a broken hand in the first place. And yeah, initially we chalked this all up to tanking, but this is abnormal and now this more information about that it could take that long for his hand to recover, I think it's concerning in the fact that they set this return date and now he's only scrimmaged a couple times. I think that it is sort of news in the aggregate. Do you think that Steph had anything going on with uh, injury-wise at the start of the year when he was actually playing? Because, I mean, we saw some pretty poor performances close to the start of the year. I think he was fine. I think what you saw was a system in which mm-hmm. defenses completely key- keyed in on him and D'Angelo Russell, and he just had a couple of tough shooting nights, and he was absolutely suffocated. And it wasn't all that. I mean, he was facing defenses like he was facing last year without Clay Thompson because and without Kevin Durant because there was no one else to pl- pay attention to. So do you think that the fact that we've seen a lot of videos and stuff of you know Steph shooting and making – Tough shots, I know, just from half court. Do you think that impacts at all your opinion of the injury, or do you fully trust in what the trainer says? I mean, I'm going to put my faith in the trainer because he's much closer to the situation and has more of a daily insight into that than any video could ever get us. I'm not going to put blind faith in him and assume that this is the worst thing ever, but that's not really what he's saying. So Mm -hmm. I just think this is something that should definitely be monitored going forward, and for that reason I would call it news. The 76ers, in another news story to look for this week, of course, are playing without Joel Embiid, who is out a week with a shoulder injury, or Ben Simmons, who has a nerve impingement in his back. It's unknown how long he could be out. It could be a long while, but they won one game. They were very competitive against the Clippers today without either of those two. So, Logan, is this news or not news? This is not news, Carson, because they beat the New York Knicks. Yeah, that's true. I mean, the Knicks stink. I don't put any credit in. I would fully expect the Sixers without Embiid or Simmons to defeat them. I mean, they still have Tobias Harris, and I know how Horford's been shaky this year. Josh Richardson, they're still, even without Simmons and Embiid, they're still way more talented than the Knicks, and we've seen them struggle all year long. Absolutely, and then they also did lose to the Cavs in the game where Embiid Mm -hmm. went down pretty early. But let me tell you, so I agree, it's not news. The one thing that has really caught my eye is Shake Milton, who's averaging 26 a game and 4.3 assists per game this week on 16 of 20 shooting from three. He's a very legitimate NBA rotation player, and he's not at the level of a guy that they can give the ball to in late-game situations and say, go be our closer, but he's one of the best shot makers on this team. He's a great pure shooter, he's a confident ball handler, he's a good passer, and he's a guy that 
I have sort of a weird amount of faith putting the ball in his hands and seeing what he can go make happen for a Sixers team that has been devoid of guys like that all year long. But I agree overall, not news. When Embiid and Simmons are healthy, do you see Milton still having a big role in the rotation? It's an interesting question. I think so, because he's still in that primary ball handler role. Mm -hmm. And he's also a guy that can play off of Simmons because he's such a great catch-and-shoot guy, so he can be sort of a one or a two for you. And I really like him. I think he's versatile, and I hope that he does continue to get minutes going forward. Do you think late-game situations, he's a guy that you would be comfortable having the rock in his hands? I would probably be more comfortable than... I should, but I still don't think he's the guy for them. I think mm-hmm. it's going to be Tobias Harris or Josh Richardson and probably Tobias Harris. Moving on to a very interesting storyline between the two frontrunners for MVP last season, James Harden and Giannis Antetokounmpo exchanging blows. Harden said in an interview, I wish I could just run and be seven feet and dunk. Like, that takes no skill at all. I had to actually learn how to play basketball and how to have skill, you know? I'll take that any day. Logan, is this beef news or not news? I think this is news, and the reason why is it contextualizes a lot we've seen from Harden and Giannis in the past that they have, you know, beef that has been cooking, it's been mm-hmm. marinating for a while. Um, I think it also gives you an outlook on how Harden perceives, I mean, it gives you a look at his personality, his yep. mentality. I mean, I personally would not be wasting my time on something as trivial as criticizing another player, but if the beef runs that deep, then... I don't know, you, you get a, you get a better look at what Harden is as a human being instead. That being said, he's completely discrediting Giannis in what he does. That is a that that's a stupid um quote from James Harden. Yeah, I think that this one is on the border. I'm gonna say it's not news, but it is certainly interesting because we don't often get star to star beefs like that. Everyone knows the NBA is the buddy buddy league, and these two guys seem to have a little bit of animus between them. Is James Harden genuine when he says this? Or is he just doing this to take shots? I totally think he is. Because I think Harden is has every reason to be an angsty superstar. He is a guy that gets discredited as much as anyone, be it because of subpar playoff performances, because people hate their style of basketball. So I think that this is genuinely how he feels. And this is what happens when all this tension builds up. And then it comes from the guy who is becoming one of the faces of the league, Mm -hmm. sort of discrediting what he does. For those who don't remember, Giannis said uh, that Harden didn't pass in the All-Star draft and then said they were going at whoever he was guarding late in games in the All-Star game. So for Harden to come back and take this shot, I think it is reflective of the fact that he feels like he is really underappreciated. And I think that that's what the interview as a whole reflected. I actually prefer watching James Harden to Giannis. I will say that. I think that Obviously, I would never put it in the terms that Harden did, but I don't find watching Giannis run down the court and dunk on people all that thrilling. But there are also obviously drawbacks to James Harden dribbling for 20 seconds every Mm -hmm. possession. And if he's not hitting his threes, he kind of sucks to watch sometimes. So it's a balancing act, but it's an interesting storyline to look at. Moving on, Mike Malone called the Denver Nuggets soft after their blowout loss to the Los Angeles Clippers. Logan, is this news or not news? I think this is news because there is some merit to Malone's point, and I think what he's uh, alluding to is the free throw numbers. And why I say this is three players shot free throws for the Nuggets in this game. And yeah, wow. three. Um, they're 27th in free throw attempts a night this season, and when your best player gets to the line four times, and no no other starter outside of Nikola Jokic shot a free throw, Carson. That shows tentativeness. It shows that maybe what you could perceive as soft. I think there's a serious issue when you look at the numbers. Yeah, and I think that Will Barton apparently echo- echoed this message in the locker room to the guys. I think this is important because the, the Nuggets are in a unique situation. As a contender, 
that have something really to prove to the national media and to the rest of the league because they haven't been there. They don't have a Kawhi Leonard or a LeBron James. So I think that they need to understand that dynamic. And sometimes I think Jokic gets a little bit complacent and assumes that people acknowledge his night-to-night greatness. Well, they don't. People aren't really aware of it. This is one of my favorite things about Mike Malone is how willing he is to call out the team publicly. He had another great quote. He said, we came into this game thinking that it was just going to be a standard NBA game. They approached this game like something was on the line and you could tell a difference from the jump ball all the way until the final final buzzer. And I think that that's true. And that's something the Nuggets have to be aware of Mm -hmm. when they're shaping the narrative for this team that still has a lot of doubters and maybe deservingly so, maybe not. Let's move on to what I think a lot of people would argue is the tragedy of the century, Logan. Malik Monk my longtime brother-in-arms and my pick for most improved player coming into this season, suspended two months for a violation of the NBA's anti-drug policy. Is this news or not news? This is news uh, purely because Carson could slip into a deep, dark, depressive state and potentially just begin acting off of pure emotion. Um, This is a scary time for you, Carson. I'll be thinking about you. I have a donut uh, that you can have. I hope that'll cheer you up. Thank you. I very well might need it. I agree that this is news. There's still no details on this, so we don't know if it's PDs, we don't know if it's marijuana, we have no idea. Maybe he was hanging out with Dion Waiters too much. But I think that this is news because this might kind of be it for Malik. His rookie deals up after this after this coming year. The Hornets seem to be committed to their backcourt long term because Devontae Graham's been so great. They already paid Terry Rogier, and he still hasn't improved in crucial areas. And you look back to early in the season. They were doing whatever they could to not play Malik Monk. They were starting Dwayne Bacon, who sucked. So even though Malik has picked up his play as of late because he's hitting more shots, I don't know if there's much of an indication that the Hornets plan on keeping on to him, especially when something like this happens. And, and you look at his per 36 numbers just to gauge how much he's really improved over the past uh, few seasons based on the numbers, and there has been no improvement. We've seen a drop-off in his three-point shooting, although he's still shooting at a very high rate. Mm-hmm. Um do you genuinely believe that Monk would not get any contracts? That, no, that no one would offer him? No, I think that he will remain an NBA player. I mean more that that's it as in he's heading down Bust Alley and there's really not much that he can do about it. I think he's joining the likes of Ben McLemore. That's, oh, that's so tough for me to hear. I'm, I'm Malik, sorry. I'm sorry. He has, I still believe he has so much potential within him as a, as a shot maker, a dynamic athlete, and we saw it. For these past few weeks when he's hitting shots, I mean, he's still a negative in just about every other sense besides scoring, but he can score the ball. But I guess that that's really not enough to make yourself a rotation player, especially in winning situations. This is a storyline that I think probably just makes all Knicks fans sort of put their their heads in their palms. Even though this... So R.J. Barrett said that he is right-handed and has better form with his right hand, but for those of you who don't know, is a lefty in-game and shoots left-handed. Now, he already said this a few months ago, but this story blew up again. So, Logan, is this news or not news? Yeah, I think this is news. I mean, anytime you have a guy questioning what hand to use on a jump shot Mm -hmm. that's in the NBA, that is cause for serious concern. We heard about this with Ben Simmons, but it made a little more sense because Ben Simmons was such a horrendous shooter and Mm -hmm. still is. Mm -hmm. When it comes to R.J. Barrett, we saw flashes at Duke, and yeah, I think this is news because... The Knicks invested a lot in this kit, and if he's got to take time off and figure out what hand he wants to shoot with, this is cause for concern. I'm going to say it's not news only because he's already said it, but it is very Knicksy. Do you have a guy who's only real issue on offense is his shot? I mean, he's a guy that gets the bucket really well. He's a solid playmaker, and he's shooting with potentially the wrong hand. 
Do you think this is why his rookie season has been so inefficient, or are there other factor, other more important factors at play here? Well, as I've talked about, I think that the spacing in New York is horrendous, especially for a guy like RJ, who's really a non-shooter and is a guy that needs room to operate with, where you can unleash him as a guy driving downhill in driving kick situations. That's where he's at his best. And I can't really attribute his shooting hand to his shooting problems, because he probably knows better than us, but it doesn't really give you much reassurance, does it? So those are the headlines of the week. Those are our news or not news conversations. But let's move on to some teams that have been very hot and very cold as of late. We've got some teams streaking in both directions as we get down the stretch. And the hottest of them all, the Houston Rockets. Let's talk about this team, Logan, because right now they've won six straight. They've beaten the Celtics twice over that stretch and the Jazz once. And now at 39-20. and 20, after being really perennial in the perennially in the five and six spot this year, they are one game back of the Nuggets and Clippers, who are tied for second place. I mean, I don't understand how this works, and I give props to the Rockets because it it, it makes the playoffs way more intriguing now that they are running this system and mm-hmm. that they are proving they can win games like that. You can attribute this to the play of obviously Russell Westbrook, although yeah. he did miss a uh, he did miss a game during this streak. Mm-hmm. Um, Robert Covington's been giving them solid minutes, but we've seen some some nice bench pieces every game turn it on for them and show out. We had a 17-point Jeff Green performance, a 17-point Ben McLemore performance. I don't know what this means for the playoffs because obviously with players like James Harden and Russell Westbrook, you really don't know going into the playoffs. But right now they look like they could they could prove to be a tough first-round uh, bounce out. Oh, absolutely. I don't think that they get up to the two-seed or the three-seed because I think when the Clippers are fully engaged, they're going to be able to win enough games to... Maybe snag the two-seed from the Nuggets now that they're tied. Obviously had a big win over them a couple days ago. But a couple things about this Rockets team. They won shooting 15 of 55 from three yesterday. That's 28%. Mm. And if this team is able to win with a night like that, now admittedly the Celtics had their own issues offensively, but Harden was terrible. They didn't shoot well. And I'll say this, Logan. I think that I have been as open as anyone for years. You can go back to my YouTube channel, (laughs) CJVB Basketball Show. Not a Russell Westbrook guy. Mm -hmm. I think he's genuinely better than James Harden right now. The form that he's playing in with this space, he's just flat out unstoppable. He hasn't scored under 20 points since December 5th. He's blowing Harden out of the water, and when Harden has off shooting nights like that, Westbrook doesn't have those because he's been so efficient because he's cut out the threes, he's getting to the tin over and over again, and then, yeah, he takes those mid-range pull-ups that he's just been hitting as of late for really two months now. Defensively, I think that there are going to be some issues with this team because, yeah, their defense has been good as of late, but people are shooting 30% from three over the six-game stretch. That would be over 3% worse than the worst team in the league. That's not sustainable. They have the number 10 defensive rating since adding Robert Covington, but I think that's more about poor opponent shooting, so I'm not really convinced by that. And I still don't see them beating the LA teams, but I no longer officially object to the Clinkapella trade. I don't know if I could definitively say it was the right thing for them to do because... As I've said before, that lack of versatility will hurt them. The fact that they can't even play 20 minutes of Clint Capella will hurt them. And I don't see Robert Covington as a must-have guy that's all that much better than Daniel House. But what having Capella off the floor consistently has done for Westbrook is worth giving up something on defense because he has been unleashed. The fact that now they can push the tempo, they're completely unique. The fact that it's way harder to double Harden now. I still don't see them as a contender, but they're a better team right now than they were. Do you think that the the Rockets made all of these moves so they could basically surround Russell Westbrook with shooters? I think 
essentially that is what they've done. And it's interesting because that was always the conversation with Russ. It was, well, the teams around him have been built incorrectly. And at the same time, when a guy shoots a million times a game, it's sort of tough to build a team around that. But we're seeing right now what happens when he does have space. He's such a dynamic athlete and people just flat out cannot stop him. And that's really an incredible thing to have. And, you know, we always talk about how Harden is unstoppable, but Harden can stop himself when he's just not hitting shots. Russell Westbrook, since December 31st, is averaging 32.7 points per game on 53% from the field. Because he's only shooting two threes a game. When he cuts out those bad shots, people can't stop him. So the Rockets are fun right now. I mean, efficient Russell Westbrook is a scary Russell Westbrook. And it's also a Russell Westbrook that has never existed. And that's why Mm -hmm. I think this is by far the best Westbrook ever. He doesn't have the best raw numbers. I don't care at all. This was a guy that was playing below all-star level and is now playing like a top 12 guy in basketball. So that's enough on the Rockets. Let's move on to an interesting race that has picked up lower in the playoffs. The Memphis Grizzlies have been on a bit of a cold stretch. They picked up a big win yesterday, but they had lost five straight before that. They lost the Kings twice, the Lakers, the Clippers, and the Rockets, and they have a brutal schedule down the stretch, the hardest in the league What are you seeing with the Grizzlies right now? Well, it's their rotation. I have no idea what they're doing. They're going consistently, uh, back-to-back games during this bad stretch, they went 13 deep in their rotation, Carson. They played everybody. and Which is especially strange because they're not playing Jaron Jackson Jr. or Brandon Clark, Mm -hmm. who are both out with injury. And it just doesn't make a whole lot of sense to me. And we've seen some bad performances from the starters. Morant had a negative 25 plus minus against the Kings. He also had five turnovers. Dylan Brooks went 4 of 14 that game. Um, and, and that was even after DeAnthony Melton went for 24 and Tyus Jones had a plus 27 uh, plus minus against uh, against the, the Kings. Mm-hmm. And you've just you can break down these individual games and there's just... Some pieces aren't showing up, whether it's the starters, which has been the main problem during this run, although we did see uh, Jonas Valanciunas have 25 rebounds and uh, Dylan Brooks had 32 points um, in another performance against the Kings. It's They don't understand their rotation right now, or they're not getting performances consistently every night from the guys who are getting big minutes. I mean, they did pick up a huge win against the Lakers. That's a game they were in control the whole time. They were great defensively, but this skid does matter. And the reason it matters is we've both been huge Grizzlies fans Mm. all year long. I think that they have been a largely underappreciated team. And John Morant, as much hype as he's gotten, I still think is kind of underappreciated because it's all about Zion now that Zion's back. And Morant is guiding a team to the playoffs, which a 20-year-old, they just don't do in the NBA. That is unprecedented for a team this young to be this good. But the issue is really the injuries because this is not the time Mm -hmm. to get injured with the Pelicans surging the pelicans having an incredibly easy schedule and as i mentioned the grizzlies having the hardest schedule in the nba remaining i completely think that the grizzlies are a good enough team to make the playoffs completely the question is are they a healthy enough team to make the playoffs because triple j and brandon clark are pivotal to this team's success and when you're running 13 deep i had to question myself to a point are you doing this on purpose i mean i just i don't quite understand i know that injuries have played a factor but it, it literally is incomprehensible to me that you would play everybody on the team that night that dressed. Doesn't make sense to me either. Let's move on to the team that has been on the flip side of this and is gaining ground dramatically. The New Orleans Pelicans, now just two and a half games back of the playoffs, they have the second easiest schedule remaining. They are 9-6 and six since Zion Williamson's debut. And some of the stats are incredible. They mm-hmm. have the number 7 defensive rating since Zion came back. They were number 27 before him. 
they're one of the fastest teams in basketball, and a huge issue with this team early was B.I.'s been having a great season all year long. Drew Holiday had got off to a rough start, but he's been pretty solid mm-hmm. since then. They have obviously great bench contributors. Derek Favors having a good season. J.J. Redick is always a legitimate contributor. Josh Hart's having a good season. They just didn't care about defense. And when you're a team that plays that fast, the area that you can impact most with just effort, getting back on defense. And this is a team that didn't care about getting back on defense. Now that they do care, Mm -hmm. they're a top 10 defense versus a bottom four defense. Yeah, and on top of that, you've seen Zion Williamson and his you know terrific scoring nights. I know mm-hmm. it's very limited, but if he's putting points up, that's all that matters. He had 25 versus Portland, 24 versus Cleveland, and 29 versus the Lakers. Carson, the question I'm going to pose to you, if the Pelicans make the playoffs and bounce the Grizzlies and you know steal the 8 spot, does Zion take home Rookie of the Year? I sure hope not, because he's going to play, what, 35 games mm-hmm. at most? That's just not enough when John Morant has had on his own merits— an above-average Rookie of the Year campaign in modern NBA history. I mean, we go back, you know, back in the day when guys came in as finished products after four years in college, Mm -hmm. they could really influence the playoff picture immediately. But that doesn't happen anymore because these guys come in after one or two years in college. So what Jaw's done is exceptional. Zion, on a per-game basis, has been better than Jaw. Not nearly by enough to me to make up for what Jaw has done. But Zion... This dude is just, uh, we've talked about it before, people are scared to guard him when you give him the ball with a head of steam, which he only needs like 12 feet of runway to generate a head of steam. He's basically unstoppable. His free throw rate right now, which is his free throw attempt ratio to his field goal attempt ratio, is higher than James Harden's. He's getting in line like a madman because a bunch of the time people have no option but to foul him to bail themselves out. So he's been exceptional. B.I.'s a legit star. Holiday's always a fringe all-star guy. He's a two-way monster. They're deep. And their only losses over this stretch are to the Spurs, which was in Zion's debut. It was a game they maybe could have won if Zion played actual mm-hmm. minutes. The Nuggets, the Rockets, the Bucks, the Thunder, and the Lakers. So they are only losing to very good teams for the most part. And their schedule, as we mentioned, second easiest down the stretch. The Grizzlies are getting hurt. Do you think that the Pelicans end up nabbing that playoff spot? Right now, I would say no, just because we've seen Memphis with consistency. But if Memphis can't bounce back from these injuries, it's very likely that the Pelicans take the spot. They're talented enough. They're deep enough. It's it's likely. And they're a different team now that they care beyond just Zion's addition because what I talked about, when they're actually playing defense, they've always had a top near top 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 tier offense. Mm-hmm. They're really tough to stop in transition. It's just a matter of caring defensively. And this has been a nice turnaround for Alvin Gentry, who was definitely, you know, getting crucified a bit earlier in the season. It's always easier when you've got Zion on your side. A team that has been one of the best in the league who we both expected to make the NBA Finals, the Toronto Raptors are on a bit of a skid by their standards. They're on the verge of losing their third straight. They've already lost two straight. They lost the Bucks, then they lost the Hornets. Is there any cause for concern here? What's going on with this Raptors team? No, there's no cause for concern. I mean, so many teams lose to the Bucks. They're just mm-hmm. a good basketball squad. And looking at this from a playoff perspective, I expect Nick Nurse to whip up something if they run into the Bucks mm-hmm. because that's what you have to do. It's what he did against Steph and the Warriors. Um, but, look, the reason they lost to Charlotte Carson, they gave more minutes to Patrick McCall than Terrence Davis. Uh, it's appalling. and A travesty. You're never going to win a game if you're not giving Terrence Davis. We, we are founding members of the Terrence Davis fan, we are. fan club. We are. If you don't give him 20 minutes, you're probably not going to win. That that was their mistake. Can I tell you another reason they might have lost? Sure. Lowry and Ibaka were a combined 4 for 27, and the team shot 23, 23% from 3 as the best 3 point. Logan's shaking his head. 
no, that's not the reason. It was the Terrence Davis lack of minutes. Um, yeah, I don't care about this at all. It's a little bit alarming in the standings because the Celtics have been so hot, but then the Celtics went and dropped one. They could have tied it up for second place, which would have been something to look for, but the Raptors still up a game on the Celtics. This was their fourth loss to a sub-500 team all year. They're 32-4 and against them. They mm-hmm. beat the Pacers by 46 the game before the Bucks. As you mentioned, this Bucks team is historically great in the regular season. They didn't have Powell or Gasol for that game. And that's, to me, what will always be under-discussed with the Toronto Raptors. Mm-hmm. The fact that they haven't been fully healthy all year. We are yet to see the full-strength Toronto Raptors. And that scares me if I'm the rest of the NBA. And it's a team that won 15 straight. I mean, And has been elite all year long. I would be terrified if I was in the East and my, I wasn't on the Bucks. Absolutely. One of those teams that might be terrified that... I came out and I said when Victor Oladipo came back, I thought could beat anyone in the East. I think that we've seen that Oladipo's not quite himself, but Indiana, after losing six straight, has really turned around. They've now won five of six. They beat the Bucks without Giannis. They lost in blowout fashion to the Raptors, as we just mentioned, but they've beaten the Blazers. How much has this Indiana team turned it around? How good can they be without a peak Victor Oladipo? Well, I think they can be very good. They're seventh in defensive rating, and that's one of the most important factors is they are still staunch defensively. That being said, I think this little bit of a run is a little misleading because of the bad competition that they've played. Mm-hmm. The Hornets, the Cavs, the Knicks, the Blazers, and the Bucks without Giannis. I don't, I don't think this is as big a deal as we're making it out to be, although it does look promising because Victor Oladipo has had some tremendous offensive performances and finally looks like maybe he's on the road to being 100% VO. I had all these stats written out about how in their four wins with Oladipo, he had attempted less than 10 field goals every time. In their five losses, he was averaging 14 field goals attempt a game, at field goals a game and had taken over, over 10 in all of them. And then he had his first volume-efficient performance yesterday, beating a Cavs team that's been playing better, dropping 19 on 7-15 shooting, and he looked good. But the Pacers' offense in closing situations was still all Brogdon Sabonis pick and roll or Warren Sabonis pick and roll or Warren Iso. And I think that's going to be the theme of this season for Oladipo. He's on a team that looks very different than the one that he mm-hmm. led for the past two seasons. And I just don't see him fully fitting in. And without an all-star level Oladipo, who is their closer and mm-hmm. who is their go-to guy and their dominant force, there is definitely a ceiling on this team. And I would retract my claim about them being able to beat anyone in the East because that's contingent upon Oladipo being a borderline top 15 guy in the league like he was when we last saw him. Yeah, I agree. I think that the Pacers are a little lackluster, and for this season, I think they ride it out, they give Vio a chance, and they see what he can do in the playoffs, but I think there's a definite ceiling on them in the playoffs. I do think it's going to be interesting to see how he and Brogdon complement each other going forward and how TJ Warren fits into all this because Warren needs the ball to be effective, and if he's there fourth best offensive guy. I don't know how many touches he gets. Carson, if you had to pick between the two, who are you going with? That's a tough question. I think it completely depends on how healthy Oladipo gets, how he looks this offseason, because Victor Oladipo, I do not want to forget, and I do not want to sell short. Brogdon's having a borderline all-star season, obviously younger, super versatile, two-way piece, awesome playmaker, Mm -hmm. but a peak Victor Oladipo to me is still on another tier. So if he's himself, I would take him. Maybe the hottest individual performer as of late is Bradley Beal. In his last three losses, he has scored 53, 55, and 42. So he's been red hot. The Wizards, as per usual, have been ice cold. He's averaging 30 and 6 now. What's the significance of this run from Beal? It's just he's getting back, obviously, at the the all-star hype and him not making the team. I think, Carson, you know what I really want to see from Washington? 
let me know. I want to see the Wizards without Bradley Beal. Because what? Well, we saw it for a few games, and Jordan McRae was kind of lighting it up. And now? And now he's just been bought out. It's very sad what's happened to Jordan McRae. Sadly, and Carson was extremely excited about that trade. I was. I mean, this team has Roy Hachimura and Davis Bertans, and then no one else. This is such a bad roster, and I think Carson, if they didn't have Bradley Beal, this may have been the worst team in NBA history. They just stink. Wow. I, be- I believe that. I think that their issues are, I mean, more than anything on the defensive end, we can point out the lack of, you know, star personnel, but this offense works, and they've been able to get production out of the Mo Wagners and the Ansez Posesniks. Whoever plays for them is somehow able to score the basketball all of a sudden, but Abil is so underappreciated, and what's crazy is he wasn't on my all-star team, and I don't really regret that with the way he was playing at the moment, because this is the best the East all-star conversation has been in a long time, but... He's a beautiful scorer, and one of my slogans is that Devin Booker is the most versatile scoring guard in basketball. Beal is a close second because he's a guy that can do it off-ball. He uses the mid-range beautifully, gets the rim, strong outside shooter, having a bit of a down season from three, but it's because of degree of difficulty. And you got to wonder how this bodes for his future in Washington because he's the number two scorer in basketball. He has 17 straight games over 25 points, and as you mentioned, it's Bertans, Hachimura, maybe you throw Thomas Bryan in there. And, I mean, Isaac Bonga has started for this team almost all year. Well, and I was going to ask you, Carson, do you think it's after these this string of performances, is he more or less likely to be traded? I think that he's equally likely because I think that you no don't matter think it, what, it doesn't change anything. No, because he was playing at a superstar level individually regardless. So he's putting up monster numbers all year long. And I don't think that it necessarily affects his contentment because he's been having those superhero performances and still losing all year long. But... I mean, some of these, he scores 53 versus Chicago on 18 of 20 from the line. And then the Milwaukee performance, flat out one of the best of anyone all season. 55 on 19 of 33 shooting, 8 of 13 from 3, 22 in the fourth, a 15-point comeback. Just a single-handed dominant performance Mm -hmm. and just came up short against, you know, one of the best regular season teams ever. Let's move on, Logan, to a team that you have put a lot of your faith in. A team that you invested in and we've talked about a good deal, the Sacramento Kings. Have now won seven of ten. What what do we make of this? Don't do this, Carson. Don't don't give me hope. What please. do we make of this? I, I make it that the bench has been performing well and the Grizzlies are beat up. I mean, they beat the Grizzlies twice in this ten game stretch. Which okay, good props that they're winning some games. Darren Fox has been putting on some some great performances. Mm-hmm. He had a couple twenty five point nights in this run, but it's really been off the strength of the bench. Um, mm-hmm. Harry Giles has had some good performances mm-hmm. as well as Kent Bazemore. I think those are. I think that's what you need to look at, and as we've discussed previously, a lot of guys are giving this team really good seasons, really good role-player seasons that are not going to be used effectively because this team's not going to make the playoffs. Yeah, they do have some good wins over this stretch. They beat the Heat. They beat the Clippers. I think that this is a little bit fluky because they're shooting 40% from three over this stretch. They're making the sixth most threes in basketball over this stretch, and they've basically been an average three-point shooting team all year, so that's not really characteristic of how they play. They are 14th in pace over this stretch, which is a marginal improvement from the bottom five pace that they have played at this year. And there are some things I like. As you mentioned, Fox leading the team in points per game, field goal attempts, getting the line seven and a half times a game. I wish he shot better from the line Mm because he's 67% on the season, but he's still aggressive going downhill and he gets the line a bunch. And as you mentioned, Bazemore playing well and Harry Giles to me at 22 and a half minutes per game. Averaging 10.8 points per game over this stretch, 61% from the field. Last four has averaged 15 and 8.5. And And in games where he plays 21 or more minutes on the season, the Kings are 6 and 1. And when he doesn't play at all, they're like, 
I don't remember what it was, 8-17 and 17 or something. And they didn't pick up his option this year, to which there is no downside. So now he's hitting the market, and it just appalls me the fact that a guy that has a good feel in on a basketball court, a guy with nice touch, good passing instincts, a fluid mover, not going to be a Sacramento King long-term, apparently. Do you think that Luke Walton will be a Sacramento King long-term? I think he will be a Sacramento King next year because they gave him that contract, but... I don't know about beyond that because I think we both expressed we're not fans mm-hmm. of Luke Walton. I would just like to have Luke Walton and Vlade Divac get in a room with me and tell me why Harry Giles does not belong <laughs> on the Sacramento Kings long term. So that's enough about the Kings. Let's talk about maybe actually you, the guy that rivals Bradley Beal for the hottest performer, Jason Tatum, who's coming off of one of his worst performances in February in which he got 32-13-5. and five. It was 9 of 27 shooting, 10 of 14 from the line against the Rockets. Had some serious hero ball late, but it could have been a special night if a couple more shots fell for him. In February, averaging 30.7-8-3 on 49-48-77 splits, 7.6 free throws a game. One of the long criticisms of Tatum that he doesn't get to the line. He's doing it now. He's doing everything now. How special has this been? It's been very special, and as you said, Carson, he's getting to the line, which I know was your biggest problem with Jason Tatum. Mm -hmm. I foolishly said on... (laughs) You can look at this, and I foolishly said, this is it for Jason Tatum. That was my big hot take. Uh, I've been wrong before. I was wrong here once more. Jason Tatum has a... It seems like he has a huge ceiling. Carson, do you think he has... Now, this could be hot. Does he have future MVP ceiling level? I don't know if I could go quite that high. I think he has first-team All-NBA ceiling. Like, he is really special. He gets a shot whenever he wants to, except for, ironically, last night in overtime. There were a couple times where he just didn't look elsewhere for an entire possession. Everyone knew he was trying to shoot, so he couldn't really do anything. But finishing well, great on defense, and I think that he's going to be one of the best players in basketball. That's what I said after his rookie year. I said he could be a top-five guy in the Mm -hmm. league. He's absolutely showing that right now. Let me ask you, not about his ceiling, how good is he right now? I'd have to say I think he's top 20, maybe top 15. I mean, and you can go higher than that because you said right now and with how hot he's been, you can make a justified top five in this run case. I genuinely believe Jason Tatum has been stupid good. I think he's a borderline top 15 guy in the league because of just the raw shot making. When you combine that with the defense, I mean, he is something special and he's not even 22 years old yet. So it's been absolutely thrilling to see from him on the other side of the break. We're going to be handing out our awards for this week on Award Tour. We'll be talking about where some NFL quarterbacks might be headed, and we'll be providing some historical context for Zion's Rookie of the Year campaign. You're listening to Blaze Radio on blazeradioonline.com. Welcome, everybody, back into Nerd Sesh, and welcome into Award Tour, where we hand out our awards for the week. And the first award is the Shot of the Year award. It's going to go to Jalen Brown, who down three points after Jason Tatum missed both free throws against the Rockets. Tatum tips out the second miss to Jalen Brown, who hits just a crazy three at the butter, at the buzzer, <laughs> at the butter. <laughs> shot of his life is the Shot of the Year thus far. Butter, because, you know, he was on a roll. He was smooth like butter. Uh, our next award is the Patchiest Beard Award. We're going to give that to Harrison Barnes because he vowed to not shave until the Kings were above 500. That is a very uh, uphill climb. Harrison, I wish you the best of luck moving forward. And the beard is not coming in all that smooth. There are definitely Mm-mm. some distinct patches in there to look out for. 
The Thomas the Tank Engine Award goes to the Milwaukee Bucks, who were 4-0 again this week, and they just can't be stopped, and they win like clockwork, like a train at the station. How about that one for you? I like it. Uh, our next award is the Steph Curry Award. We're going to give that to Hassan Whiteside, who went 1-1 one one shooting from deep against the Celtics. And on the year, ladies and gentlemen, listen out, 60% on the year. <laughs> Got to guard him. Mm-hmm. Got to guard him out there. Three of five from three, I believe. Yeah. Ooh, that's a weapon. The Michael Jordan Award goes to Shake Milton, who we talked about earlier, averaging 26 and four this week on 68% from the field, 80% from three. The coldest hooper we've seen since MJ? Is that too much to say? I don't think so. No, I think I think that's a valid take. And our final award, despite the season-ending injury, the Most Handsome Man Award is still going to Kelly Oubre. As it should. Mm-hmm. There is really no other candidate. We're going to do a little bit of NFL talk now. We haven't done it yet on this show, but free agency is coming up, and we are going to be taking a bit of a sabbatical uh, after this week's show. So we got to talk about where some big quarterbacks are going to land because there's actually a really intriguing market this year, which we haven't had for a couple. And the number one guy in everyone's mind is Tom Brady. Logan, where do you think Brady's going to end up? So this this one's tough because never in a world would I have figured that Tom Brady would be playing for anyone else other than the Patriots. But in recent memory, I, I in recent events, I genuinely think Brady's leaving. You saw the wow. You saw the Edelman clip that he's coming back, and then Brady mutters he's not. I'm going to take his word for it, and I think landing spots for Brady are Tennessee or Las Vegas are, are probably the most likely. And with his tie to Coach Vrabel, I think that we could very well see Tom Brady. Man, this is weird to say. In a Tennessee Titans uniform next season. I'm going to disagree with you. I still think he goes back to New England. And here's why. His entire career, he has prioritized legacy and winning. He understands that his wife makes hundreds of millions of dollars and that having money, the team that is, to go out and get weapons, having the Patriots winning culture, are more valuable to how he will be remembered. I think he's also very aware of the fact the only criticism on him ever could be that he's a quote-unquote system quarterback and that he benefits from Bill Belichick. But in that conversation, the ambiguity works to his favor because you can never prove that. And if he goes out there at 43 years old, which is what he'll be next year, is he really going to do better somewhere else than in New England? And if he does fail in New England, it's still with Belichick. I understand the hesitancy to pay him big in New England, but I think that they're the ones that really have the leverage here because Brady's legacy is on the line. I don't think it will be pretty if he leaves New England. So unless they straight up don't want him, I think that he will come back. So you're saying that you think Brady would leave out of spite almost? No, I'm saying I don't think he would leave out of spite. I'm saying I think he will come back unless they say, we will not accept you. No, I'm saying that in the scenario that he left, it would be out of spite. I think it would be to prove something. And I don't think that there's anything that he can really gain from that because he's not going to go in a Super Bowl with the Chargers. Well, that's why I said he's going to Tennessee. He's not going to win a Super Bowl with the Titans. Why would the Titans do that? Why would they give up Ryan Tannehill, who was just had a very solid season for them, for a 43-year-old Tom Brady? Well, that's in the scenario they can get Tannehill back. Now, I don't know. Tannehill, if I, w- if I was Ryan Tannehill, I would definitely want to go back to Tennessee mm-hmm. because you've, you had a career year. It was... I mean, he was horrendous, and he wasn't horrendous in Miami, but he was a very mediocre quarterback. Tennessee, he I blossoms. think it's overstated how much he struggled in Miami. Like he was actually pretty good. He, he also he just dealt was with never injuries. healthy. He was never healthy. Yeah. Let's talk about Tannehill. So I think Tannehill stays with the Titans. What do you think? Well, if I'm going with Brady to the Titans, I've got to stick with it, and I'd say that I think 
Indianapolis is probably a landing spot for Ryan Tannehill, and I know that's strange to say as well. Some candidates would be Chicago, maybe, Vegas again. I think the Colts would give him to him because I think they still view Brissett as a bit of a liability quarterback. He's very limited. I'm not saying that I think Brissett's a bad quarterback. I think they see him is limiting, and Tannehill upsets the Pats in the first round in the wild card weekend. I think that if Tannehill does not go back to Tennessee because of Brady, I think that Indianapolis would be his landing spot. I gotta say, I really don't understand the desire to move on from Brissett, who is a young guy who I thought had a really good season before he, you know, had the ankle ankle injuries and came back and was never really the same mobility wise. He's mobile enough. He's good out of the pocket. I think he's smart. He's a guy that I like. But for the Titans, I think it totally makes sense to bring back Tannehill because he was a bit ugly in the playoffs. He's not a guy that's going to go out there and win you big games, but. It makes sense because he did have a good season overall and carried them to the most successful season in a while. I don't know what the cutoff point is as far as what you're willing to pay him because really almost every starting quarterback that's a legitimate starter makes like $20 million a year now. Mm-hmm. I don't want to go much above that for Ryan Tannehill. No, definitely not. I agree. And I also like how I said that <laughs> Tannehill upset the Pats. He didn't even throw for 100 yards. I'm. He was there. Derrick Henry upset the Pats. Tannehill was there. Yeah. So another very interesting guy. And with the whole board that you have going on here, I want to see where you have him ending up. Jameis Winston, where does he go? So <laughs> this one's also tough. My questions would be, do the Pats want him? Do the Bucks want him? Mm-hmm. Because Bruce Arians has made it clear that he views Jameis Winston as a net negative. That, uh, he's made that abundantly clear. And he knows that he wants to go out and get another quarterback. I say that he goes back to Tampa Bay just because I don't think that uh, Bruce Arians can lure anybody else away and out there. Maybe they look to draft. I don't know. If I'm Tampa Bay, though, I would probably just bring back Jameis and hope that LASIK eye surgery helps. Yeah, I don't think that Jameis comes back because Bruce Arians just seems to hate him. He says that they are confident with the plan that they have and that Jameis is not aware of that plan. I think that I'm going to blend a couple quarterbacks together here because I think they go out and get Teddy Bridgewater because Arians has said publicly that he loves Teddy. They're not going to be in the range to draft a top guy. They're going to be below the Herbert, um, obviously Joe Burrow, Tua tier, maybe Jordan Love, but I would rather invest my future in Teddy Bridgewater who's shown that he can do it. And I think that that's what they do. He's not going to be all that expensive by starting quarterback standards. He doesn't make mistakes. And with the weapons that they have in Tampa, he could be very good. I think that Jameis goes to the Chargers. It's oh. a little bit of Philip Rivers well, 2.0. You know what's funny is I have the exact opposite. So I have Winston going to Tampa Bay, mm-hmm. and I have Bridgewater going to Los Angeles. Interesting. Now, the reason why I have Bridgewater going to Los Angeles is I think he's going to be a bit of a transitional quarterback. They're going to give him his leash, but they're also going to take mm-hmm. a young guy. I think we're going to see a bit of Tyrod Taylor, Baker Mayfield action here, and they're going to see, can he open up and can he be solid enough to where we can just let Herbert or whoever they draft work? Yeah. Carson, do you think that if the Chargers sign somebody, they're not going to use the, uh, what is it, they have the fifth pick, the sixth pick? They have the sixth pick. They have, if Do you think they're not going to use the sixth pick on a quarterback if they go out and sign Winston or Bridgewater? It's going to be an interesting thing. So, right now, if you're looking at the top tier of quarterbacks, Burrow's going to go one. Mm-hmm. Tua and Herbert, I think more often than not, are being projected to go in the top five. So, obviously, free agency comes before the draft. Both of them? That's what I've been seeing. I mean, I've heard rumors of Tua going to the Skins, and I've heard rumors of Herbert going to the Dolphins, which um, I don't really agree with. 
Here's what's going to happen, though, and this happens every single year. Quarterbacks shoot up draft boards late. Always. So I would not be surprised at all if those three guys go top five, and free agency comes before the draft, so they're not going to know who's going to be available. Mm -hmm. They might trade up. I'm going to bet against it because I don't think that one of those guys fall to them, and I think that they take Jameis Winston, and he's their guy for a couple years. Mm -hmm. And that would be very interesting to see because there are legitimate weapons in L.A., and we've seen what he can do with legitimate weapons because he just did it in Tampa Bay. A lot of touchdowns, a lot of turnovers. And that's what you'd get in Los Angeles, which I don't understand if you were Los Angeles why you would go out and get Jameis over Teddy. I guess that that's an interesting point. I This, to me, was really more about the fact that I don't see Jameis going back to the Tampa yeah. Bay Buccaneers because there seems to be such a shaky relationship there. I was going to suggest maybe Jameis to Chicago, but that also doesn't help whatsoever. I mean... It I'd say it's an upgrade from Mitch Trubisky, but for whatever reason, the Bears seem to want to keep Trubisky. Yeah, well, they want him to ride out his rookie contract, which, if you're in a, with a defense like this, you can't waste time. I think you've got you to pull the trigger. You can't waste time, period, in the NFL. Mm -hmm. Or the in any professional sport, these windows are always smaller than they seem, and this is a team that went from winning 12 games to, did they win 7 this year? 8. 8. A total fall-off in Trubisky was terrible and was a huge part of that. Now let's talk, Logan, about your arch nemesis. Philip Rivers, longtime starting quarterback for the San Diego and then L.A. Chargers, who now they have parted ways. Where is he going to end up? Tampa Bay or bust. That is what I envision for Philip Rivers. He hmm. now lives in Florida with his family, and I say if he doesn't go to Tampa, <laughs> Philip Rivers is going to retire, and I'm going to be the happiest man on planet Earth for that day. So they're going to have the turnover quarterback room, the two guys that just throw a bunch of interceptions playing was, off of each other. It was so uncharacteristic of Philip this last season. Like I know he, he can turn the ball over, as can any quarterback mm -hmm. from the 2004 draft class. Yeah. They were all pretty good at it. Yeah. But I think that was a bit fluky, or if you can look at it differently— it was more characteristic of how old he has gotten and that he can't be a starting quarterback more in the NFL, which is why I would just retire. I would go... Now, now there is one more scenario that I would like to throw out for Phillip Rivers. Okay. He goes the Jay Cutler route. He retires, and one quarterback gets hurt uh, very early on in the season or in preseason, and he is an emergency fill-in. That mm -hmm. is the only real scenario I see for Rivers. And that will happen. The question is if he's happy with whatever money he's going to get paid to do that because it's not going to be all that much. I'm not sure he gets paid as a starter. And quarterbacks are always a hot commodity. I don't know how hot a 38-year-old Phillip Rivers coming off of probably the worst season of his career is. The thing is, though, I mean, as people always say, the NFL is a what-have-you-done-for-me-lately year. Because mm -hmm. two years ago, Phillip Rivers yeah. was great. Genuinely had one of the best years of his career. And if I were the Bears, oh my god, I'd go out and get Phillip Rivers in a second. But it just doesn't seem like the Bears are going to do that. I think this this arises some other questions. I mean, can Rivers play in the cold? Can he... Well, we've never seen it, so who knows? Exactly. I just think that there are some other scenarios. North Carolina but it, gets cold sometimes. Sometimes. Yeah, I, I've been there before. Um, yeah. If Chicago... I don't know the benefit, because I think... If you're Chicago, do you bring him in as a backup to Trubisky? Do you have Trubisky be the backup? No, it would be as a starter. I think that we can agree that Phillip Rivers makes the Bears better right now. Yeah. And also, forever, because Mitch Trubisky doesn't have some ceiling that he hasn't reached yet. He's just bad. So now let's move on to one last team, a actually technically a new team in my mind, the Las Vegas Raiders. Never existed before. And their quarterback, Derek Carr, he's not a free agent, but he's reportedly being shopped. I don't really see the market 
for Derek Carr. What do you think? Neither do I. Um, the only place that I would see, to two places really. Mm-hmm. Now, Chicago, which doesn't make any sense because it would be another big trade that Chicago would... Yeah. I, I don't know if you could say Chicago lost because they did get a, one of the best outside linebackers in NFL history in Khalil Mack. Yeah. But... It'd just be really strange to see another yeah. big piece from yeah. Las Vegas now depart. Mm-hmm. The scenario that I have for Derek Carr is the Patriots, probably. And the only reason I say that is in case the Raiders are tired of Derek Carr, they would go out and get someone in the draft potentially, mm-hmm. and I don't love him. Jordan Love um, is an option. Yeah, Maybe someone else up there. But if the Raiders do get a quarterback and Brady's gone, well, then the Patriots need a QB. That kind of makes sense in the scenario that you have played out. But since I see Brady coming back, I see Derek Carr staying as well. So we teased this a little bit earlier, but right now, Zion Williamson, having made his debut in 2020, is the best NBA rookie of the 2020s, basically by default. But we thought that we would look back with all the hype that Zion has generated and break down some of the best NBA rookies by decade. We'll start with the 60s. We'll just give a shout out to Wilt first because I think he averaged 37 and 27 as a rookie in the 59-60 season. But he doesn't qualify because it's the season that you're drafted in that counts for this if you play in that first season. I also want to give a shout out to Elgin Baylor as well, who of course you know, went to the NBA Finals and was a member of the All-NBA First Team back in the... 50s as well. Ah, uh, yes. The first of eight times that he got his heart broken in the finals. <sighs> mm. The 60s. Who's the rookie of the decade for you? Uh, no brainer. It's Kareem Abdul Jabbar. I mean, he came out the gates 28.8 points per game, 14 and a half boards, four assists. He was an all star and a member of the all defense second team, all NBA second team, and third in MVP voting. I don't think it's close. I like how it's a no-brainer when we also have from this decade the only rookie to ever win MVP in Wes Unseld the year before Kareem, but I, I agree that it's clearly Kareem. Average 28.8, and a half and 4, takes the Bucks from 27 wins to 56, basically set foot in the NBA and was the best player for a decade, which very few people in basketball history have done. Mm-hmm. Another honorable mention I would like to point out, the Big O, Oscar Robertson, averages 30.5, 10.1, and 9.7, and Walt Bellamy. Always a statistical anomaly. Averaged 31 and a half and 19 as a rookie and was never the same. And that's a little bit a little bit similar to some of the ABA numbers we saw from mm-hmm. guys like Spencer Haywood or Marvin Barnes, who really weren't very good NBA players and also dealt with some issues off the court, but in their first ABA seasons just went crazy. Let's move on to the 70s, the era of the ABA. But I think that without a doubt, the best rookies were in the NBA. Who's the rookie of that decade for you? So it's almost split, but I'm going to give it to Larry Bird here just because he won the Rookie of the Year race outright mm-hmm. over... The next guy, Magic yeah. Johnson. Uh, Bird came out the gates hot, 21 points per game, 10 boards, and 4.5 and assists. He was an all-star, a member of the All-NBA first team, and he finished fourth in MVP voting. But I can see how you would make the case for Magic because he did come away with the finals MVP in his rookie season. Yeah, I know that this coincided with a couple other additions to the roster, but the Celtics also improved from 29 wins to 61 in Bird's rookie season. And again, we do not see rookies impact winning like this anymore mm-hmm. because guys just don't come in as finished. But, yeah, Magic has a case. He's not my pick, but he has probably the signature moment from his career with 42-15-7 and seven in Game 6 of the Finals. But also not an All-NBA guy in the regular season. Obviously had Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, the best player in basketball. Didn't have him in Game 6, but had him for the rest of the year. And I think the fact that Bird was the Rookie of the Year in the moment and the fact that he had such a dramatic mm-hmm. impact as the number one guy on his team, whereas Magic was the number two, that's why he would get the slight edge for me. Moving into the 80s, which I think is... 
the best decade in this conversation, who would you say is the rookie of that decade? Um, you, you have some competition here from Pat Ewing and David Robinson, but the, the guy of the 80s is still Michael Jordan. I mean, it, uh, nearly unprecedented what he was doing. Yeah. 28.6 boards and 6 assists a night. All-star, he's a member of the All-NBA second team, and he finished 6th in MVP voting. Michael Jordan off the gate. 28 a night? That's insane. Yeah, he was one of the best immediate scorers ever, which I think that... You know, with retrospect is obvious, but we have to remember this guy went one pick behind Sam Bowie, so it wasn't as much of a lock no. in the moment, but so special from the start. My first honorable mention would be David Robinson, who comes in, averages 24-12, 1.7 steals per game, 3.9 blocks per game, brings the Spurs from 21 wins to 56, All-NBA third team and All-Defense second team, and I honestly think he has a legitimate case. The issue with this is, of course, he comes in at 24 years old because he spent four years in, in at Navy and then went and did two years mm-hmm. in the Navy, which is obviously heroic. David Robinson, the admirable, is a hero. Let's not be unclear about that. But it, it's almost like taking PEDs a little bit. You're, you know, it's a little bit unfair when you come in at 24 years old for the Rookie of the Year conversation. You're not you liking could, the PED comparison. You it's could, kind of cheating. You could say it like that. Um, That's how I just said it. But. <laughs> to improve a team's win total by 35 is huge. Another guy you didn't mention, who maybe will get forgotten in the best rookies conversation because he had to compete against Michael Jordan, but Akeem, mm-hmm. 20.6, 12, and 2.7 blocks per game, second team all defense as a rookie on just an incredible twin tower two duo with Ralph Sampson, who was the rookie of the year the year yeah. before that. So those two were pretty fun for a while. Of course, got to the finals in 86. Moving into the next decade, the 1990s, we are yet to disagree and I wonder if it'll come here. My feeling is it probably won't. Who do you have? Uh, I have Shaq. Is, is... It does come here. Okay, Go interesting. Um, Shaq, 23 points a night, 14 boards, 3.5 blocks. Was an all-star, 7th in MVP voting. He obviously didn't impact team success as much as some of these other rookies, but there is comp. Uh, you've got a guy like Tim Duncan, 21 points, 12 boards, 2.5 blocks. And in his rookie year, an all-star, all-defense second team, 5th in MVP voting, and the Spurs finished 56-26. and 26. That's one hell of a resume for a rookie. And I do want to give a slight shout-out to Allen Iverson, mm-hmm. who averaged 23.5 points, 4 boards, and 7.5 and assist, assists in his rookie season, but was in fact not an all-star. Yeah, well, the Sixers won 22 games, yeah. so I think that's probably why. For me, it's Tim Duncan. And Shaq, as a physical phenomenon, obviously unprecedented even going back to his rookie year, but... I don't know if we will ever see another NBA rookie impact winning and impact the championship conversation immediately like Duncan did. Obviously, by his second season, they're winning the championship, and he's the best guy on a championship team. But the Spurs, as you mentioned, go from 20 wins to 56. Obviously, David Robinson coming back plays a part in that, too. But 21, 12, and two and a half blocks per game on 55% from the field. First team All-NBA, second team All-Defense, top five MVP voting, the best guy on a very legitimate contender. I'm not sure we will ever see anyone come in and impact the game like that immediately as a two-way force on a winning team. I don't know when that's going to happen again. No, it's kind of unfair that he spent four years in college. You know, it's almost like doing PEDs. It's essentially like doing PEDs. Yeah. Yeah. That's a take for mine earlier. (laughs) We'll put that one Put that one in the record books. Let's move into the 2000s, where honestly the caliber of rookies drops down significantly, in my opinion. Who's the rookie of the decade for I, you? It's clearly a Mecca Okafor. I mean, what, no doubt. What no performs in the 2000s? No now, doubt. It's not really a race. I mean, LeBron kind of takes it here, and you can look yeah. at any rookie that you want. I checked out, you know, KD and uh, Derrick Rose, but it, I think it's more 
how the college game has changed to one and done, and LeBron obviously coming mm-hmm. in and from high school, and gonna, he's going to win our rookie of the decade. I'm assuming that you have LeBron as well. I do. Uh, 21 points a night, five and a half boards, and near six assists. But then you get a guy like KD, who didn't spend that long at Texas. He comes out the gate scoring really hot at 20 points, but he only has four boards and two and a half assists. And then a guy like Derrick Rose, who had an amazing college career just because he got Memphis to the title game, only stays one year, 17 points, six assists, and four boards. It's clearly LeBron. I agree that it's LeBron. Still didn't impact winning as you would hope. Wasn't all that efficient. 42% from the field, 29% from three. KD's Sonics won 20 games, so I don't think that you can give him that award. Even though he was a bucket from the start. Only 29% from three as a rookie, though, which is weird. Derrick Rose was definitely there athletically immediately. I would argue, as far as just raw rookie season production... Tyreek Evans, a better candidate. 20 points, 5.3 rebounds, 5.8 assists on 46% from the field. Definitely the best season of his career, although he was great last season as well. But Or no, two, yeah, last season, but now he's out of the NBA forever probably. Well, and if you want to throw somebody out there, Michael Carter-Williams had an amazing rookie season. Uh, 16.7 points per game mm-hmm. on top of six rebounds and six assists. I was on the Michael Carter-Williams hype train. If we talk about MCW way too much uh, through all of our content but yeah he was great those Sixers teams were just so bad and someone kind of had to score Mm -hmm. moving into the 2010s the most recent decade of which John Moran is technically a part but Zion Williamson is not who is your rookie of the decade Uh, far and away it's Luka Doncic I mean 21 points eight boards six assists I know he didn't get the accolades but that just kind of shows you how far we've come as a whole as a league Mm -hmm. Uh, you kind of gave me a funny look Carson do you have somebody else I actually disagree I think that Luka is Second on this list, I would put Blake Griffin here. Averaged 22.5, 12-4 as a rookie. Finished 10th in MVP voting somehow, despite the fact that the Clippers won 32 games. And as far as physical dominance, obviously missed what would have been his rookie year with injury the year before. Was a guy that just couldn't be stopped, basically. He couldn't shoot free throws, he couldn't handle or shoot like he can now. But athletically, he was one of a kind. The 12 rebounds a game shows that. The passing was still there to a certain extent, and he was special. So he's number one on my list. Luke is a close second. That there's no way you you genuinely think that Blake was a better rookie than Luca. I do. That surprises me. I think that Blake came in and was just a dominant force in a way that Luca wasn't. And Luca's more fun to watch, more skilled, more promising, maybe even because you could see the ceiling immediately. And the second year jump, not even close. Can also keep in mind that Luca's doing this as what two years younger than Blake was, or whatever, mm-hmm. three years younger. But I think raw rookie season, Blake wins. Some other guys I would like to shout out, Carl Anthony Towns averaged 18 and 10 and a half, and it was just kind of like he can score, and that was pretty obvious. Ben Simmons, 16, mm-hmm. 8 and 8, really changed the course for a Philly team that had sucked forever, even with Joel Embiid the year before. They were never in the conversation, and then they win 52 games with Simmons, what he was able to do defensively, his impact on the game as a whole. I think he was really a great rookie. Yeah, I mean, this year Simmons has had such an impact. Uh, I mean, this being his rookie season, I expect him to win Rookie of the Year again this year. Oh, wow, I remember that now. Oh, Donovan Mitchell actually wasn't. um, Donovan Mitchell should absolutely be there. He had a great rookie season as the number one option on a playoff team. And you already mentioned Carl Anthony Towns, correct? I did. Carl Anthony Towns had a pretty good rookie season as well. 18 points, 11 boards, 2 assists. As we said... Even up to this point, Carl Anthony Towns does not impact winning all that much, 29-53 and 53 that season, but he's another guy. Yeah, and there were some guards from earlier in the decade. Dame, Kyrie, John Wall all had pretty good rookie seasons. And But again, none of these guys compare to like a David Robinson, a Jordan, even a Duncan, a Shaq, because those guys were coming in as finished products, and mm-hmm. we just don't get that in the same way anymore, even though Zion's been great and even though Ja has been great. So 
that's going to do it for us here today at Nerd Sesh. We will actually be taking a break from the live show for a few weeks because we're going to be going on break, so we won't be here next Sunday or the following Sunday, but this week we will still be coming out with our NBA podcast on Wednesday, our sports history podcast on Friday, so you can catch both of those on our SoundCloud. For Logan Camden, I have been Carson Brever. This was Nerd Sesh. You're listening to Blaze Radio on blazeradioonline.com.